been around um, my teaching versus preaching. Um, my teaching uh, uses um, I, this is a lot. This is half for you and half for me. Um, I do a lot of do, doodling and scribbling um, because it's just helping me think. Um, so I'm going to put stuff on this board, but don't um, don't freak out if you have no idea what I'm writing here, okay? Because um, it, it really it's it's kind of pointless. I'll just be doing this a lot. Um, however, um, I gave this what I'm about to get to you. I gave yesterday to the officers of our church, and there and they have. Um, um, there's been many requests to uh, to do what I don't do well. People like uh, uh, like Will on staff, um, like him. He they, what they do well is package it. Got a nice PowerPoint presentation, handouts, and all that stuff. And I just don't do that well. Um, I talk, and um, I'm working on that. So so what I am pledging to do is if you, if I as I go through this, if you're if you're thinking to yourself, boy, I would love to have that kind of neatly packaged in something that I can look at, um, I, I am pledging to you to do that. Um, it'll, um, I'm going to work on that this week, and then, and then we're going to upload those documents um, with, uh, with all the other stuff that's going to be uploaded. So you'll be able to get this if you're not able to uh, get all the notes down and stuff like that. Okay, um, let, me, let me pray here. Our Father, we are... Um, in many ways, this week has stretched us, stretched our paradigms, pressed in on, um, on things we have previously um, not understood. And, and quite frankly, Lord, it's, it's made us uncomfortable at times. But that's good, Lord. It is arrogant to presume that we have everything figured out, that we have all the answer, that our way of doing Life, our way of doing Christianity is flawless and that we don't need to grow. We're, we're always in process. We're always growing. We're always unlearning false truths, false habits, false practices and learning new truth, new habits, new practices. And so I pray that um, as we pick up this uh, topic, which, which for some of us is, is a topic that we love and for some of us is a topic that makes us uncomfortable. Um, I pray you give us grace to, to all be of one mind and in humble submission to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, um, so a conference like this presses us into uncomfortable places and that, in some ways, that's the whole point. Um, we host a conference on depression. We bring in speakers that speak a different language than we speak in many ways. It, it makes us uncomfortable and it, and it presses in on our paradigms. And that's the whole point of a conference like this. And I think for some of us, particularly for some of you who grew up in a different time and era, um, a different generation, one of the most challenging things in all of what has been taking place this week is the notion of counseling... And I would even go further and say all that counseling represents. So the notion of counseling, just the idea of sitting down with a counselor and paying them money to talk. That's just crazy for some people. But I would, I would, I would take that even deeper and say all that counseling represents. Going back, looking at wounds, talking about Jesus healing those places. This, this kind of language is just... Ugh. For some of you. 
I was the same way. Um, in, in the same way that I could not understand depression and anxiety um, because I had never experienced it. And then when the Lord gave me that bitter season, I now get it. Um, I would say that was kind of my disposition towards the whole idea of counseling. I thought I had my Bible, I had prayer, I had my Bible study, I had pastor, go church, I got it. That's, that's, that's what I need. And, and the idea of going to counseling and all that stuff, um, I was a little cynical about it. I'm just going to admit that. And, 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 and once again, until I was exposed to it, until I was exposed to it being done well. So this time is to help our congregation. Um, I felt the need as, as one of the pastors, as kind of the teaching pastor of this congregation, to kind of get everybody together and, and take all that's been going on this week, and particularly those things with, which relate to counseling and um, therapeutic language and all that stuff, and, and, and bring us back to an area that I think is very precious to, to you, which is the Scriptures, Help us to see that all we're doing here this week is actually very biblical. Um, And so I'm going to come at it this way. Um, I'm going to look at a defense of counseling from Scripture and then a paradigm of counseling from Scripture. So the first thing I'm going to do is just just convince you from Scripture that the whole counseling and all that counseling represents, the methods of counseling, is very biblical. Um, and then I'm going to come back and I'm going to say, okay, well, what, what does good biblical counseling look like? What's a paradigm for that? That's, those are the two moves I'm going to take. Um, let's start with a defense of counseling for Scripture. Here, here's, I'm going to come at it. There's so many ways I can come at it. I, can, I could just take you to instances in Scripture where we see it, and I'll, I'll do a few of that. Um, but I thought maybe a more holistic understanding would help us. And, and so I'm going to come at it this way. Counseling is... The, the reason for counseling and your need for counseling is rooted in a, a holy book that has the most complex understanding of who we are, of what's wrong with the world, and what's wrong with us. Our Bible is not simplistic. It is incredibly complex, and it has incredibly complex solutions. And so counseling is rooted in this complexity. And, I, and I'm going to show that to you in three ways. I want to, I'm going to show you the complexity of, of, an Im, of image bearers, of who we are, who God's made us, the complexity of the fall, and the complexity of sin. And I think once you start to see how complex this all is, you're going to start to see, boy, we can't have simplistic answers like we tend to want to do. So complexity of image bearers. We were created in the image of God. That is the Bible. We are created in the image of God. Now, right from the beginning, one thing we can say right from the beginning is that we are created. Now, what that means is that we are finite, dependent creatures who need counsel, who need counseling. Ultimately, all we're saying in counseling is you don't have all the answers. You don't understand it all. You need counsel. I mean, the the word counseling is so stigmatized for so many. But in reality, all we're saying is you need counsel. You need somebody else. Somebody who's really good. Who really gets people. And really gets the scriptures. To talk to you. To speak into your life in profound ways. God alone counsels himself. 
There is one being who needs no counsel, and that is our triune God and the counsel of the Holy Trinity. Outside of God himself, we all need counsel. It is very arrogant for you to live your life as though you do not need counsel. That's living your life as though you are God. So just from the outset, everybody needs counsel, okay? Can we all admit that? But let's go deeper. What does it mean to be an image bearer of God? What it means is that you are a very, very complex creature. Um, You are not an animal. I know our world tries to do that to us. You are not an animal. You know, say what you want about the creation accounts and how you view those. One thing we all agree upon is that there is a distinct difference between the creation, the animals, the world, and these creatures, image bearers of God. Um, What that means is we're not just a body. We're a soul. We are body and soul. We're not just minds. We're not just ideas. We... um, we are emotions, we are habits, we are loves. The Bible, you make a very biblical case, Augustine makes this, that primarily, primarily we are lovers more than we are thinkers. We are mind, we are body, we are soul, we are emotions, we are lovers. Not romantically, we are that, but and that is one of the unique things we do. We do love, but, but more than that, we worship. We have these capacities of longings and all of these different things. So you get this really complex creature who exists within a story. That God ordained for these creatures to be formed by a story. Now before the fall, that was a perfect design. Because what would it look like to take all of these unique image bearers of God? What would it take like all these unique image bearers of God and give them a perfect family? And a perfect community? And a perfect world? Well, there would be no need for therapeutic counseling like we do. Um, Because the formation, our story would perfectly form all of these complexities of an image bearer. But what happens when you take image bearers, these incredibly complex creatures, and place them underneath the fall? What happens is our stories no longer form us, they deform us. We become less than human. Our humanity is broken Our longings are disordered. Our loves are all out of whack. Our emotions are hurt. All of these different things, all this language we're talking about, all we're talking about is complex creatures existing within a fallen and broken world. So counseling, counseling um, is rooted in a complex vision of what it means to be a human being. You're an image bearer. Also, it, 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 it makes room for the complexity of the fall. And we're starting with the fall before we talk about your sin, because that's the pattern in the scripture. And we're going to see that here in a minute. Um, <clears throat> what's wrong with you is not just your sin. What's wrong with you is far more complex than that. Um, you've been wounded. You've been hurt. Um, an exercise I always do, um, and, and, and people fall, in, fall for it every time, and I won't do it with you um, because since I told you they fall for it, you wouldn't fall for it. But um, I, I always ask people, what does the Bible say about you? And, you know, if they're a good, trained, reformed person, they will say, I'm a sinner. I say, no, 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 you're not a sinner. You're an image bearer of God. 
It's the first thing the Bible says about you. You are created in the image of God. That's what we just talked about. Oh, okay, you got me. All right, now what's the second thing the Bible says about you? I'm a sinner. You were sinned against. Before the fall, before the fall, a lie was told to image bearers. An injustice took place. A deception entered in. And in response to that sinful action toward Adam and Eve, sin came into the world. We were first sinned against, and then they responded in sinful ways to the ways that they were sinned against. And that view of humanity, that, that doesn't excuse their sin. Is there any point in the rest of the scripture where they say it's Satan's fault? It never happens. It's always, actually, it's always Adam's fault. That, that, that gets into complementarianism. Eve, Eve, Eve fell and Adam's blamed the rest of Scripture. But um, he, he curses Satan, he curses the woman, and he curses the man. You're all accountable here. You're all accountable. But they were sinned against before they sinned, and that matters. We are victims of the fall. We're going to get into this in a little bit. We are victims of the fall. And that's harder for you to admit than, than, than that you're a villain. You are victims of the fall. Things have happened to you that should not have happened to you. You have been sinned against. Sexual abuse, parenting failures, you have been sinned against. And that needs the redemption of Jesus just as much as your sin. Jesus came to heal the effects of the fall in your life and to forgive your own contributions to the fall. And both of those are very important. And I'm not, it goes beyond just... Um, the ways we've been sinned against. Just the, just the plain brokenness of this world. Um, that, that, you are, you are bo- that natural disasters happen. That cancer strikes your body. That, that you're born with a disability. Um, you know, you watch Jesus. If, if you don't think that Jesus takes wounds seriously... If you don't think that Jesus takes your pain and your brokenness and the ways you have been a victim of the fall, if you don't think he takes, you, takes that seriously, then don't read the Gospels. Because all he does is go around and undo pain. Undo wounds of the fall. And he doesn't do it the way we want. We want him to heal the deaf guy and then say, now let me share with you the four spiritual laws so that you can accept me into your heart as Savior. And he doesn't. So often, he just heals and then moves on. As if I have come to undo what sin has laid waste. I have come to heal the pain of your life. So Jesus, we're going to get to this. Jesus was an incredible counselor. He undid wounds. So, so what it does is it recognizes the complexity of the fall. And then it recognizes the complexity of sin. Um, here, here's when we finally get to sin. We're finally there with your problems, you know, which you think are all your problems. And the only problem I have is my own stuff. Um, that's what you're accountable for. There's no doubt we're gonna get to that. But even when we get to sin, still it is so complex. Jesus says things, I mean, his Sermon on the Mount, this is the whole Sermon on the Mount. You have heard it said, don't commit adultery. Okay, what I'm gonna say to you now is if you have lust in your heart towards her, you've committed adultery with her. That's how I view sin. You guys view sin as like these little bad things that you do. 
I see it far deeper, far complex. I see it as literally um, misplaced longings and loves, idolatries, um, um, the dispositions of your heart. I see your heart. I see the depths of sin. I don't see the actions. In fact, you can make the case that Jesus tends to be very, very ambivalent to external actions. He's not impressed with the Pharisees and he's not grossed out by prostitutes. He's always, always, always interested in the heart, in the sinful heart. Now, if, if the Bible had a view of sin like every other religion has, that it's just a bunch of do this, don't do that, counseling, would, there's, it's, counseling, counseling is worthless. I will give you a list. Here's what you're supposed to do. Here's what you're not supposed to do. Thank you. Give me my money. We're done here. But if sin is down into the deceptions of your heart, if sin are hidden idols that you can't even see, you're going to need a far more complex solution to your sin, to repentance. And Jesus does this, by the way. He heals people, and when he confronts people, he is getting down into the heart of their sin. He, see, he meets a woman at the well and, and, uh, and says to her, hey, go call your husband. She said, I don't have a husband. He's like, I know you don't have a husband. You get a lot of them. And you've been going around giving yourself to men and their affection, and their attention, and their physical touch. But I tell you, if you'll drink this water that I give you, you'll never be thirsty again. That was my interpretation. That's not what he said. You keep drinking of this, your heart, your thirsty heart keeps going to all of these men, drink what I have to offer. Okay, but then he meets a, a rich, powerful, arrogant, controlling man. Says, hey, I want you to go sell everything you have and give it to the poor. Follow me. Now, why didn't he say that to her? Thank you. Yeah, <laughs> thank you. It's been a long week. Why didn't he say that to her? Why didn't he say to the woman at the well, go sell everything you have and give it to the poor? That wasn't her idol. It wasn't her deep, sinful patterns. Why didn't he say to, why didn't he confront that man on the lust of his heart, which I'm sure was there? Because that wasn't his Sin. Jesus gets to the heart of your sin. He doesn't simplify this thing. It's very complex. And that's what counseling recognizes, is that sin is a very complex thing. It's disposition of the heart, and we need that. So counseling is rooted in this very complex view of who we are as people, of the fall, and of our sin. What is the, <clears throat> what is the answer to all this complexity, biblically speaking? The answer is that a complex issue needs an equally complex solution. And there is one word the Bible gives to that solution and it's called discipleship. The Bible's answer to such a complex problem is discipleship. Discipleship is the primary method of change within Scripture. Jesus himself, Mark 3, we preached a sermon on this. Mark 3, Jesus called them to be with him. When Jesus said, when Jesus called people, he said, come, follow me, be with me, do life with me. Let me watch how you do things and I'll correct that. Let me watch what you love and I'll press into your loves. Let you watch me do life. Discipleship is his primary way of unlearning the fall and relearning the kingdom. Of unlearning the old man and relearning the new man. He does this through discipleship. Now, 
let's nuance discipleship out even more. There's part of discipleship that just says, you just need to come into my home and, and, and watch me do dinner as a family and just, just, just learn that. There's part of discipleship that means, hey, we need to study doctrine. You need to get your systematics in order. That's part of discipleship. And a big part of discipleship is we need to get down into your story, into your heart, into your wounds, into your deeper sin patterns, and that needs to come undone. Now, counseling has come about. The modern counseling model has come about essentially because the church has not done its job. Um, Lottie, who's with us, always says, I would love for the church to work me out of a job. If the church did discipleship well, I would not need a job. But unfortunately, we don't. We don't do this. We don't do that level of get down into your business life. And we just let Christians exist on this surface unknown level where they're not pressing in and, and, and to use the language of Lewis, going, going higher and deeper. And because of that, there's a need for counseling. Um, it's it's kind of like parachurch ministries. If the church was doing its job, things like Young Life, um, Campus Crusade, things like that, we wouldn't need those. But we're not doing our job. We're not evangelizing the lost. We're not doing a good job of discipling college campuses and stuff like that. So we need parachurch ministries, and we're thankful for it. I would say counseling kind of fits into that paradigm. The rea- counseling is rooted in discipleship, and discipleship says that God has given all that we need for our discipleship to the church. He has given gifts. Um, I do not have the gifts to pull off the conference that we just did. It would have been a chaotic vortex of a mess if I was leading that conference. Will Witherington, I hand the conference to and his wonderful team of volunteers and boy, it's amazing. Okay, but you know what I can do? I can sit down with you in 15, 20 minutes and I I could tell you what your idols are. I, could, I, can, I can tell you how your parents screwed you up. Because I have prophetic gifts that come out in the pulpit and come out in, in the counseling session. But there are prophetic gifts. There are, I hate that the spiritual gifts get, get so marred in the charismatic controversy. Um, but there are people that God has uniquely equipped to, um, with the gifts of, of, of prophetic gifts, discernment gifts, exhortation gifts. And, and, and you know, that's, that's what the counselors we brought in. That's what they have. I mean, Lottie's fine in giving seminars and stuff like that, but get in a room with her and let her go after you, it, it, you're in trouble. In a good way. Um, and so all this is saying is that discipleship is the answer to this complex issue and that a part of discipleship is this deeper discernment process. Counseling is trauma discipleship. Counseling is trauma discipleship. God has equipped people with unique gifts. If you want an example of this, you got Nathan, um, where um, he, his, the, there's one entire chapter about his sin, um, his, his rape of Bathsheba, his plot to kill Uriah. The next chapter, God sends him a counselor. God sends him a prophet, Nathan. And he goes right after him. He says, David, there's a man who had all the sheep in the world. And there's one man had one sheep. That rich man took that sheep and stole it from him for dinner. What do you think, what do you think should happen to that man? And David just gets enraged. The man who deserves this, des- the man who did this deserves to die. 
And Nathan the prophet, the counselor, looks at him and says, you're that man. That's you, David. And he falls down in repentance. This is why he's a man after God's own heart. He falls down in repentance when he's been exposed. When his sin has been exposed. Jesus is a counselor before he is a preacher. He does a little bit of preaching in the Gospels. But essentially the Gospels are filled with his counseling of his disciples. That's what we're privy to. We're watching him counsel his disciples for three years. He's discipling them. He's counseling them. So it's a defense of counseling from Scripture. Shoot. All right. All right. Um, <clears throat> if you promise me that you will leave here when we are done, um, I'm going to go a little bit over. Um, because this is, this is um, what I think, what, what people yesterday told me was really helpful. Um, so I'm going to go a little bit over. Uh, but we will be in here. We will start worship at 1115. Uh, okay. That's a defense of counseling from scriptures. What would a paradigm of counseling from scripture look like? This is where I'm going to scribble. Um, what I did is I took the counseling in my life that I have received. Primarily from, from Lottie who's with us. And then I took all of my counseling appointments that I've had over the years. And I just felt this need to bring, and this, you, you all know how my mind works. I just felt like it was a little bit chaotic. And like if you're at the conference this week, like there's just handouts everywhere. And like, you're just kind of like, what do, I, what do I do with all this? And, 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 and is there any biblical way to approach this? What would a paradigm be? And so I took all the counseling that I've personally received and all the counseling that seems to have worked for me and I, I kind of put together um, a model that is nicely alliterated for us Presbyterians. It's very orderly. Um, and, and I put together a model that I'm curr- currently working on a, a curriculum that hopefully um, once it's finished we'll be able to do small, small groups in our church that follow kind of this paradigm. Um, but I'm going I'm, I'm, I'm to share with you kind of how this works, how I think counseling works. I took, I took what really what Lottie has done to me, my family, and so many other people, what I've been able to do for others, and I've systematized it a bit. And it basically follows, um, uh, it follows this pattern. Victim, villain, victory. I think this is everybody's story um, as a result of living in the fall. Um, <clears throat> and what I typically do, so you come to me and you say, I got this problem. Whatever your presenting problem is the language you use. My marriage is a mess. Um, or I'm depressed. I'm suicidal. Whatever. You come to me with this problem. Um, it, I, what I will not do is say, oh, you got this problem? Let me try to fix it. And... and um, Here's how I know how to fix it. Again, this means absolutely nothing, okay? I'm just thinking. <laughs> just let me scribble. Um, here's how I'm going to fix it. I'm gonna, I'm, I, I want you to pray this prayer. I want you to memorize this verse. And um, I want you to read this book. There you go. That, good luck. You've, have you tried that with your addiction? How's that gone? You tried that with your children? They gone well? Your marriage? Did you read the book? And woohoo, we're in love. Read a book. Now, what I'm going to do is I'm going to say, okay, you're depressed. Okay, why? Why are you so depressed? 
Do you have a food addiction? Why? What happened to you? And we're going to go back and we're going to start here. I'm not going to leave you here, but we're going to start here. We're going to go into your story. We're going to look at the way you as an image bearer living in beneath the curse were sinned against. Either intentionally or unintentionally. Either as um, just a good old fashioned, uh, just a good old fashioned brokenness of the fall. I was born with uh, this and it just, it's, it's haunted me or, or, um, or, or something that happened to you, a deeper thing like a sexual abuse or every time we will go here or your parents. Let me just do an aside on parents here. Um, Presbyterians, more than anybody else, um, need to believe in counseling because what our doctrine affirms is that a child is not born as this autonomous, independent creature to pave its own path. That a child is born within a covenantal family that is bound up in generational patterns that is deeply affected by that and that the most that God has ordained the most formative discipleship to happen by your parents in your home. And, and, and if that's the case, then yes, this will go to your parents eventually because they are the most formative influence in your life. And we're going to look at the ways your parents failed you, which is hard for you to do. We are much more comfortable um, being a villain than a victim. And that is why it's easier to confess our own sins than to confess the ways that we have been sinned against. But in the same way, our unconfessed sins continue to own and destroy us. So if you've got sin in your life that you're not willing to admit, you've got an addiction that you're not willing to admit, you're doing something that nobody knows you're not willing to admit, that's going to destroy your life. You know that, right? In the same way, unconfessed wounds, unconfessed pain, unconfessed... I will not admit that this happened... And this hurt. I'm not going there. That will continue to own you in the same way. Our pain, like our sins, must be brought to the light of the gospel to let Jesus take care of it, to let him heal it. The problem with modern therapy, and this is why you rightfully get a little, "Mm." the problem with modern therapy is it only stays here. Modern therapy just stays here And that type of counseling will inevitably lead to entitled narcissism. But to overcorrect that by never looking at your wounds, by never looking at your parents, by never looking at your past, by never looking at your abuse, is equally destructive as only leaving you here. What we see in Scripture is that we are simultaneously victims and villains, and we are simultaneously victims and villains, and the former shapes the latter. And that's very important to understand. We are simultaneously a victim of the fall and a villain of the fall, and the former shapes the way we are a ladder. So it would be very easy for me to look at the sins of your life, and I could probably figure out your family and the generational patterns and your parents and their issues in an hour. Because it's really not rocket science. When, when the Bible says that the sins of parents... The sins of the father will be visited on the children and children's children. That does not mean that God says, you sinned, Mm, I'm going to get your kid and I'm going to get your grandkid. Punish. What it means is that God has ordained the covenantal family so deeply, so interconnected, that our sins will literally form 
my children, those three boys, are being formed as we speak by my failures. And their children, my grandchildren, and my great-grandchildren will know the folly of Robert Cunningham. That's how connected this generational thing is. Um, Sammy shared a story, and so I'm assuming... um, uh, Better not share it. I don't know if... He shared in the officers, which wasn't recorded. So I better not share it. But Sammy shared a story with us of his grandfather, a deeply respected man in the community, hard worker, great man, da-da-da-da-da, abusive husband. And his father watched that abuse and, um, and, and um, turned to his addiction. Um, this is very public. The Sammy's dad um, turned to cocaine and eventually crack. And then Sammy talks about his depression as a result of that. And you could very easily trace back his grandfather's treatment of his wife to this entire conference of a man coming here and telling you that he's thought about killing himself several times. It's not hard. The sins of the father will be visited on the children and their children's children. Now listen, as parents, I know you are freaking out right now. And, um, and you should be in some ways, but here's the good news if you're willing to do this. You ready? This is really scary. You want to set your kids free, is all you got to do is repent publicly and say you're sorry. If you want your child to stay in bondage to the generational stuff, keep pretending. If you want to set them free, you come to them and you say, I needed you to be perfect because I don't, I hate myself. I don't believe I'm a man. And kids, I need you to perform to, 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 to convince me that I'm enough as a father. And I'm so sorry. And I'm going to work on it. And I'm probably going to have to come back and repent again. And then again, and again, and again. And you know what your kids will do? They'll forgive you. And there will be this weight lifted off. They will become free. So this, this stuff ends, we're going to get to this stuff ends in repentance. You can stop it now if you have the courage you have the courage. Where was I? Um, so it starts here with victim. Um, <clears throat> what I'm going to ask is, you're going to come to me and say, I'm really angry. I can't stop. I'm going to say, why are you angry? And, and I promise you it won't be hard um, for anybody that's any good counselor to discover that. And, and you're going to have to own that. And you're going to have to admit that. And then we're going to use that to start talking about who you are as a villain. How has your story shaped you as a sinner? I think we think this sin, when we say that we're all sinners, I think what we think we mean by that is that we're all the same sinners, and we're not. We are all fallen in nature, but our sinful tendencies and patterns are formed in unique ways. My idols are different than your idols. Again, that's why Jesus says to one woman, hey, you got an issue here, and to, um, and to the man, you got this issue. It's unique and it's all formative. So we've got to discover not just, it's not enough for you to come to me and say I'm a sinner. I got to figure out what kind of a sinner are you? If you're going to repent of this thing, if you really want to be different, we're going to have to get down into deeper levels of repentance than just stop it. And to do that, I've got to understand this. You've got to understand, not me. You've got to understand this. and You've got to own this. I am angry because of my abuse. I am a perfectionist, a neurotic, anxious mess because my parents raised me to be perfect and I was not allowed to mess up. 
You got to be able to do that. We're going to get to what to do with that. If you think it just ends in being mad at your parents, you're wrong. Okay? So, when we come to villain, I like to do it like this. Um, when we're talking about you as a villain, this is the iceberg. So up here, above the surface, is what you're going to come to me for. Why are y'all laughing at my iceberg? <laughs> above the surface is, um, is what you're going to come to me for. Um, I keep having these outbursts of anger. Um, I'm greedy. Uh, it's wrecking my marriage because I'm a workaholic and, and you know, whatever. My kid's depressed. Uh, depression. Um, um, I, I can't stop looking at porn. I have a porn addiction. I have a food addiction. I have a whatever. The, the, above the surface is what you're going to come to me for. Okay? Now, where I talked about modern therapy, where it airs, is leaving you in the entitlement victim stage. Where Christian therapy airs, is just going to say, oh, cool. Stop. And here's a verse to stop. Stop. Your addiction. Oh, you're angry? You're yelling at your wife? Quit yelling at your wife. Jesus tells you, don't yell at your wife. Don't yell. Stop. That's not repentance. That's not the way Jesus talked about repentance. He did not say, stop having an affair. He said, I see lust in your heart. Stop being angry. No, no, no. You've heard it said, don't kill. In your heart, you look at that person with contempt and bitterness, you are committing murder. He sees this, and he's concerned about this. In fact, he's really almost indifferent to this. In fact, he uses this so that you cannot ignore this. In other words, if you came to me and you said, you know, um, I can't stop viewing inappropriate material. It's an addiction. I can't stop. And I've prayed over and over again, God, take it away. Help me, help me, help me, help me. And he won't take it away. You know why? Because that is a symptom of this. And he's not going to take away the symptoms so that you can just go on not caring about that. This is screaming at you. Something's wrong here. And he's not going to take that away. So you can just ignore this, what he really cares about. So he'll leave the painful thorns there. He'll leave the painful actions there until you get here to what uh, Skip Ryan calls the dispositions. This is so pointless. The the dispositions of the heart. So our wounds, our pain, our being sinned against, our story, our our, our victimhood forms the iceberg really forms this, which forms this. Now, do you want to repent? You want to get, you want to, I'm, I'm, talking, I'm talking about, do you want to be different? Do you want to not, like not just white knuckle your addiction, but actually be set free? You want, your, you want to be able to stop yelling at your wife and your kids? Or do you want to be a person of peace that transcends understanding? If you want that type of repentance, you're going to have to go here. Or you can just keep pretending and try to white knuckle this Christianity thing. So our, our, um, our, our victim forms who we are as a villain. Okay. Now. Now we get to victory. Okay. How am I doing? Not good. I can't see this. 
Okay. Uh, we're quick turnaround, okay? Very quick. You have to promise me. All right. Victory. We're going to move, and then I'm going to take you. We're going to live here for a while, by the way. And we're going to live here for a while, and then we're going to go here. What is victory? This is so important. You've got to redefine victory. Some, and this is our circles, there are two faulty extremes to talking about living victoriously as a Christian. There are two faulty extremes. Some are wrongly cynical. This is us. Wrongly cynical, thinking there is no hope of victory. I'm a sinner. Woe is me. I'll never be different. That's, that's the reform fault. The other extreme is wrongly triumphalistic. So one extreme is cynical, one is triumphalistic. Thinking that victory is as simple as a sincere prayer, an encounter with God's spirit, claiming victory by faith, that type of thing. If I could just have the right experience, I'll be free. Biblical victory holds that tension. Contrary to cynicism, it says victory is possible by the power of God's spirit that raised Christ Jesus from the dead. The spirit of Jesus Christ that raised him from the dead is inside of you. You can be different, Christian. Contrary to triumphalism, victory is a long, difficult journey of daily picking up your cross and following Jesus. So you can be different, but the journey of victory is long and arduous. It is, if anybody wants to be my disciple, he needs to pick up his cross. He needs to deny himself. He needs to pick up his cross daily, is the verse, daily and follow me. It is this long journey. So we got to redefine what we mean by we say victory. We need to redefine that. Um, I love this quote from John Owen. John Owen's mortification of sin in the believer was really impactful in my life, changed my life. You've heard me quote it many times. One of the things I love about Owen's work is at the end of his entire treatise on how to kill sin, he says, oh, by the way, you can't kill sin. This is how he defines mortification of sin. To mortify, kill, is a, is a fancy Puritan word for kill. To kill a sin is not utterly to kill it, to root it out, to destroy it, that it should have no more hold at all, nor resistance in our hearts. It is true that our aim, that is our aim, but this is not in this life to be accomplished. Wonderful success against sin may be attained so that a man may have almost complete and constant triumph over it, yet an utter killing destruction is not in this life to be expected. And the reason why that is important is because you begin to view victory as a cruciform lifestyle. I wake up, Owen says this, I wake up and I give my sins fresh blows. I give these, the dispositions of the heart, and Tim Keller does it every day. He stops three times a day and he looks at his unique dispositions of the heart. He has his unique, he, he struggles with ambition, control, and all these different things. And three times a day, he stops what he does and he mortifies his heart. That's living victoriously. It's this path of victory. Now, how does this come about? I, I got to hustle here. How am I going to lead? How is a good counselor, not just me, how is a good counselor going to lead you in victory? They're going to they're call you to two really, really difficult things. Forgiveness for this and repentance for this. The pathway to victory is to forgive the ways you have been sinned against and to repent of the ways that you are a sinner. Now, when I say forgive here, that is not a glib um, love keeps no records of wrong. Record gone. No, no, no. That record is not gone because it's still owning your life and it's so obvious. 
When we talk about forgiveness, we're talking about the painful crucifying forgiveness that we see on the cross. It'll hurt that much. You got to confront it. You got to confront your abuse. Maybe even confront the abuser. Maybe, maybe you got to confront your parents and do what scares you to death. Scares you to death and say, I've been hurt. You got to get angry about it. Before you can forgive, you got to lament. You got to get really mad. That's hard for us, right? To get mad at the ways we've been sinned against. And then, once you've gone that painful road of owning your sins, the ways you've been sinned against, confronting the ways you've been sinned against, you can actually extend them true forgiveness, where you are actually free. Not this glib, I forgive you, move on, not think about it. It's still owning you. You want to be free? If you want to be free, we're talking about Calvary forgiveness, real forgiveness. So we're going to call you to forgiveness here, which is a difficult path, and then we're going to call you to um, repentance here. Repentance here as a villain and repentance on the dispositions of our hearts. Not just stop doing these actions, but deep down repentance. We're going to help you understand what are my idols, what are my unique sins, and what would it look like to start practicing habits of repentance in those deeper ways. And that is a journey. This right here doesn't end until you're in glory. Okay? So we'll go through this, we'll go through this, and then I'm going to set you up for a journey of forgiveness and repentance. All right, I need, I got three minutes and then we're going to get out of here. Let me say these two concluding thoughts. And I just, I just, I felt like, I said this to the office yesterday, I want to say it to you. Um, millennials, which I'm on the tail end of that. Um, we are wrong and weird and we miss it on so many things. If you would like for me to give a sermon on where millennials are crazy, I can give that better than anybody in this room. I see it. I get everything you see about these young, don't get it people. Do you have the humility, you older generation, that has spent your life hiding and white-knuckling Christianity? Do you have the humility to say, I think they may be onto something that we missed. I think God might be correcting the church through my children. I think, because I'm telling you, they're right here. Millennials are wrong on a lot of things. A lot of things. They're right here. The most introspective book ever written is the Bible. Go read the Psalms. Go read Ecclesiastes. Go look at Jesus. It is introspection, introspection, introspection that leads to external change. Your kid that you think is so self-obsessed and all their journaling and da 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 Why don't you try it? Might help. I think the millennials are right. That's what I'm saying. We're wrong on a lot of things. I think we get this. And I think the older generation needs, need, needs to maybe humble themselves and, and say, maybe they're on to something. Maybe this will lead to deeper freedom in Christ. The second thing, and I have one minute to say it. We as an institution, and I'm talking to TCPC people here, and it's just if you have been here a long time, listen. If not, you can, you can leave. We as an institution, as a church, have not done this for a long time, and we have suffered because of it. We have had depression in this church. We have had suicides in this church. We have had a pastor kill himself in this church. And it's time we just admit it and own it and say for too long, this has been a place where you can pretend. That's not Christianity. 
TCPC. I'm talking to you people who've been around a long time. It's not Christianity. This is Christianity. And this idea that you're supposed to just grit it and bear it and ignore and hide your pain and your sins is not biblical. And I'm tired of people suffering in this congregation with depression and suicidal thoughts and having to hide. And I would even say, yes, Petros sinned against this because there's an entire generation of children at this church who are suffering because of his sin. And that needs to be said and owned. And we need to say that to our children who are there, who still say, I got a pastor who committed suicide. Now let's go back to pretending. We got to go. I'm sorry. We got to get into the next service. But I'm just, as the pastor of this church, why did we just do this conference? Because it really is time to change the culture away from that. And, and we're committed to that. Forgive me if I was a little too passionate there. Um, let me pray and then we'll leave. Lord, we trust you with that. And even if, if um, just I trust you. Um, help us now to worship well as we see the Savior who is familiar with grief. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, uh, leave, please, if you're not going to be in church.